Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, snowflakes. No, your ears do not deceive you. This is not Steve Anglesey. Once again, this is Eleanor Longman-Rude. I'm a journalist at The New European, and I'll be hosting the podcast this week. If you enjoy what we do, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, we have a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can purchase a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. You'll have unlimited digital access, and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. In this episode, I'll discuss Liz Truss's first week at number 10. Is it out with the old and in with the new or more new leadership, same old mistakes? And as Truss gears up to ride out the storm, in her own words, and Boris Johnson prepares to well, do whatever it is Boris Johnson does. What's next for Rishi Sunak? I'll be hearing listeners' thoughts on just that. The new European Suna Erden will be joining us to discuss all of this and the challenges facing Brits who want to live in the EU after Brexit. Plus, as ever, I'll be putting more malevolent ministers and future pundits into our hall of shame. I've reached a realisation this week. British politics has become a parody. It's entered the realm of reality television, some sort of hybrid between Big Brother, Black Mirror and The Truman Show, all mixed into one. My suspicions were first aroused on Monday by none other than Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby. On this morning, they had a spin-to-win competition where callers could win £1,000 or have their energy bills paid for them for four months, which is exactly what happened to one lucky caller. I can't wait for next week's instalment where another lucky caller will win a GP appointment. My suspicions were further piqued when the next day Boris Johnson gave his farewell speech, commencing with, this is it folks, in a somewhat bizarre tone similar to Davina McCall heralding in a Big Brother final, before continuing to refer to himself as a booster rocket that's now fulfilled its purpose. The thing is with rockets though, they tend to exit with real style, impact and speed. No comment on that one. Later that day, Liz Truss insisted outside Downing Street that she was going to ride out the storm while, literally, trying to dodge a storm of a British autumn. I was half expecting Davila McCall to pop out, microphone in tow, and say, hey, a Tory government, fancy another one. 
But no, Liz Truss's tenure of number 10 has begun, but perhaps we shouldn't underestimate her. And while Truss gears up to lead the country, what's next for her former opponent, Rishi Sunak? Well, we asked New European podcast listeners what Rishi should do next. Darren Leatherly responded with a gif of Donald Duck diving into a vat of golden pennies with the caption, if he's not already. I believe he has been doing that for a while, Darren. A number of listeners suggested he up and leave the country. Destination? America. Peter Lith even suggested he'd get a pretty nice job teaching at Stanford. Musashi said a GMB presenter, and Andy simply asked, who's that? Ah, Andy, Rishi Sunak. That's um, Dishy Rishi turned Fishy Rishi, the former chancellor, often seen decked out in Prada shoes, which he then used to kick off the vast number of resignations that ousted Boris Johnson. No? Well, maybe you're not missing out on much. And service charged, potentially not their real name, referring to the questionable 2020 government ad aimed at those in the creative arts industries and their need to retrain amidst lockdown after lockdown, said his next job could be in cyber. He just doesn't know it yet. Now, before Suna Erdem joins the podcast, she and Klani Hanela have put together an exceptional piece of journalism. It's accompanied by a special three-part pop-up podcast series entitled The 27. Here's a trailer. The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download where you found this episode. And if you want to help us do more work like this, then you could subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Joining me now on the podcast is the New European Suda Erdem. She's written this week in issue 307 of the New European under the headline, Is There Any Escape? I a thought I'm sure lots of us pondered during the recent leadership race. As Brexit has killed freedom of movement, she's questioned how easy is it for Brits wanting to live abroad in the EU now? Welcome to the podcast, Suna. Hi, Ellie. Thanks very much for having me. That's okay. That's okay. Before we start on this on this brilliant piece that you've written, let's talk uh, briefly about Liz Truss and her first week in number 10. Firstly, it was hardly, you know, towards the end, it was hardly a nail biter of a contest. Were you surprised that she did come out on top in the end? I mean, in one sense, it would have to be yes, because to put it politely, I wouldn't have had her down as top PM material by any objective measure in the past. But on the other hand, of course, the whole Conservative Party in its sort of current UKP incarnation does seem to have a dearth of talent at the moment. And given that they threw out or alienated so many of their more thoughtful, the more moderate politicians recently, you know, you don't expect anyone brilliant anyway. Then you have the leadership contest that wasn't very edifying. So, you know, either they were nuts, they were vague, they were hardline, or in the rare, rare cases, they were moderate, they were too moderate. So the general expectation wasn't very high. The competition wasn't up to much. So in that context, nothing would have surprised me. And then you've got the fact that she was always supposed to be the darling of the membership. And even though the MPs didn't choose her, we know that she would have had a good chance if she'd got to the last two, which is what happened. And obviously we knew from the polling coming up to now that she was ahead. So it's a sort of long-winded way of going that sort of objectively, it's surprising that she is prime minister, but from all the evidence, it wasn't a surprise at all. It was very boring at the end, even though there was a little rush at the end for Sunak to um, possibly catch her up a bit, which he, he clearly did because uh, she didn't have that big an advantage. But no, I mean, it was expected and she she walked into it and she's the, uh, here she is, Liz Truss Prime Minister. Here she is. Yeah. 
I think, as we were saying this morning, Liz Truss, Prime Minister or PM Liz Truss is not four words I thought I'd be saying last year. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know, Rishi, the margin wasn't as as great as many thought it. It would be sort of 80, 81,000, I believe, off the top of my head to 60,000. Um, and obviously we are a few days, you know, just a few days into her tenure. Um, how do you feel she's doing sort of fresh out of the gate? Um, well, it's, it's interesting because obviously the expectation among many of us was extremely low. Um, so when you put that bar in place, um, she's actually doing OK. I mean, she seems to have a plan. We might not like it, but it's a plan. And, um, you know, after all that worry that there wasn't anything helpful and hopeful on energy, um, she has an energy plan. It's been received well, even by money saving expert Martin Lewis. I mean, when I say received well, of course, it's there are many flaws in it. But in terms of the general public, they all they see probably is uh, I don't have to pay as much for energy as I had to had I thought I had to and that's a relief and so you know again it's, this is something we were discussing earlier will they look beyond that will they look beyond the borrowing will they look beyond the fact that it, there's no windfall tax um, not at the moment that seems to be working in her favour um, then she did PMQs um, she was more assured than anybody expected again with the caveat that the bar was low but um, she seems better when she's not scripted in a way and um Unlike Boris Johnson, who waffled and he didn't believe in anything, he didn't prepare. She sort of, she seems to know what she thinks. She seems to think that she knows what she's doing and she's putting that across. She's sort of directly answering questions more. She's throwing out her own beliefs um, against Labour's questions rather than just sort of some silly waffle and silly little phrase, like Captain Hindsight or something, which makes some people take her more seriously. And she's you know, getting in those clear echoes of Maggie Thatcher. I mean, even she's a pound short version of her when she says they don't believe in aspiration it sort of has echoes for people who want to believe she's Maggie Thatcher so that's sort of working in the first few days and I mean George Osborne sort of surprising for some again has been praising her recently um saying that he would have picked her for prime minister several years ago which maybe he's telling the truth about that um and he sort of seems to see her as more of an old style Tory but with beliefs and a plan you know beliefs seem to come up a lot in people who praise her so yeah, I mean, um, she's doing a lot better than, than we think. I mean, but if you look at internationally, um, there's obviously a lot more immediate work to do there. I mean, Biden didn't get in touch for ages. And then there was this sort of inference about Northern Ireland and not messing this up. And then, um, you know, but there's, there's a lot of worries about what she's going to do with Northern Ireland. Is she going to trigger Article 16? And that sort of reflected in a way, that worry is reflected in her choice of ministers, which is probably something that the general public won't particularly bother about. But you've got two hardline Brexiteers in the Northern Ireland brief. You know, what does that mean? Is she going to cause a, rump, a big problem or is she just threatening? I mean, even got Barnier trolling her, who's sort of in a reference to what she said about Macron when she was announced. She said, well, the jury's out. So... It's it's up and down, but I think she's done much better than expected. Um, and you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things written about how we shouldn't underestimate her. And I think at the moment, that's what she's um, testing. She's saying, "Oh, don't underestimate me. Look, I'm not as bad as you think." So mm. let's see if that that sustains. I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, and as um, 
we were saying, you know, this morning that it's been quite a low bar and maybe that's why she's not doing as badly as people thought because the expectations were possibly on the floor, if not lower. <laughs> and it's interesting what you say when perhaps like at PMQs, when it's not so much of a scripted environment, obviously, you know, you know what you're going to bring up and you know what you're going to say. But compared to when she's had these very rigid and fixed speeches, you know, without mentioning the pork mark- markets and the cheese injustice, <laughs> which she was come to know for. So it'd be interesting to see one, I guess, how long this sort of honeymoon period lasts and if she is better, more um, off the cuff, which again will, you know, whether that works in her favour or not when we get round to elections and things like that. And as we were discussing again in, in a meeting yesterday, we makes our meeting sound very interesting. We were discussing the <laughs> origins of democracy um, and you sort of quip that, you know, in the days of ancient Greece and Athens, that people were executed for lying. Now, Obviously, nothing this is extreme is going to happen in the Commons, but you never know. But do you think, because obviously, you know, a characteristic that was tainted with the last Tory government was, you know, lying and dishonesty. Do you think, you know, she's promised a commitment to the UK's existing net zero target to cut taxes? We've already seen, you know, some plans unveiled this morning about soaring energy bills. As the dust settles, can we continue? Are we going to hold her to her word? Do you think we'll continue to see her fulfilling the promises that she's laid out? Yeah, I think at the moment we're still at the low bar territory. I mean, um, you know, after Boris Johnson, anyone's going to be a, some kind of truth teller. So on that basis, I would hope that it would be a bit less um, duplicitous. Um, but it, and it's the same Conservative Party, you know, the, the personnel might have changed, but the same people are there, the same sort of thinking, the same entitlement seems to be there you know we can do anything we like and in fact it might even be going further in some cases so um i can't say this is going to be this glorious new era of honesty so even in the leadership contest you had uh, rishi sunak saying he was going to tell the truth and he's going to tell the hard truth and trust was the one who was in cloud cuckoo land according to quite a few people um so you know, is she going to change from being what others call her an optimist, which is another thing they call John Johnson, as if that was a good thing, even though the optimism seemed to mean seemed to mean sort of sunlit uplands kind of conversation. You know, is she going to change that much? I, I don't know. I mean, she was a Remainer and then she became a Brexiteer. Does that mean she can change from being a in cloud cuckoo land to being rational, or is she just going to, you know, take take the baton from Johnson and run, but just in her own very inimitable way. I mean, she has brought in something about energy, obviously, as we said, um, she is promising to cut taxes um, and uh, commitment to existing net zero target. I don't, I don't really know if I can, I can't, I'm not very hopeful on that at the moment. It might be quite difficult for her to change given that it's all sort of set in stone at the moment, but the signs aren't good on that. I mean, she's making announcements about North Sea oil, about more exploration, fracking, she's attacking solar energy farms. So, I mean, you know, not really talking about the renewables. So her, the signals on climate and the net zero target are not good at all. But on the other hand, of course, you know, it takes ages, decades for oil to come in. And if will fracking actually happen? I don't know. So it might be just a sop. But then you've got other issues um, with her choice of personnel again. I mean, I think the, the people, the climate ministers are on board, but Jacob Rees-Mogg on um, energy. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that she's going to deliver very much on that. Maybe she'll try to commit to it, but fail because... Um, after all, the last government committed to it, but it didn't put in the plans to, in place to meet it. So it might be a bit of a, a fudge like that. I guess we'll just have to um, to wait and see what, what lies ahead. 
And then obviously, so, you know, Trust got 81,326 votes and did become leader. Rishi Sunak received 60,399 and did not. This week we did on, on social media ask podcast listeners what they think he'll be up to next. We got some very interesting answers, including that his next job could be in cyber. He just doesn't know it yet, which I enjoyed. Um, <laughs> what do you think, you know, he did, he said now that he will stay in politics. What do you think we can expect now from, from Rishi Sunak, Suna? Mm, well, as he's staying in politics, um, he's going to the back bench. I'm not sure he'll enjoy that. I don't know whether, you know, I, I couldn't speculate, but one thing I think, is um, possible is you know, given how young he is that he would be able to challenge again maybe when maybe hoping that Liz Truss will go belly up or even later so you know I don't know how it's it's hard to say how much he'll contribute as a, a backbencher he doesn't seem very clubbable from what I can see very sort of a team person um, but I'm sure he'll be back well, I'm sure he'll want to be back, let's say, whether he can stick it out being a backbencher and not be lured by a sort of big money job, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think he's being really bruised. He's quite thin-skinned. So I think he'll be licking his wounds for a while and then make some kind of decision. Mm. He'll be back, like some sort of weird Terminator reboot <laughs> that, that I definitely don't want to watch. He's in a very slick film about it. I yeah. mean, that was interesting about him, wasn't it? He was very slick presentation, you thought, but actually in, when he was campaigning, he fell apart. He wasn't polished as a campaigner, as a performer. So, I mean, I wonder whether, you know, he was promoted very young and he was he went straight into, I think he went to department in 2015, didn't he? And um, he went very quickly into the chancellorship job. So he hasn't had to really fight in front of the public for much. So maybe he'll find that he's not very good at that. But um, again, I think time will tell. He probably it probably wouldn't do him any harm to spend more time um, on the back benches and thinking about how he's going to present himself from his own point of view. Now, on going into your your piece in this week's issue, issue 307 of the New European, you asked uh, if there's any escape, potentially an apt title for this <laughs> week's podcast episode, but sort of looking at the issues discussed in, in this article, what has Brexit, you know, to start here, what has Brexit's impact on freedom of movement been? Um, I mean, on the very basic thing, you know, we have to get our passports stamped. <laughs> we mm -hmm. have to, so that takes longer. There are um, coming up later, there are sort of plans for um, uh, something sort of similar to the US Esther, where you have to, um, you know, apply before, pay some money, and then you've got a few years you can go in. So this is just sort of touristy side. And I mean, that, for instance, that, um, that plan seems to have put um, Eurostar's plan to, for direct, or you know, Eurostar's direct train to Euro Disney um, off the table. So, you know, it's, it's, you can't take your children so easily to Euro Disney. And when you do go on the train to Euro Disney on one of the other trains, everyone's going to be annoyed by your children on it. So small, but significant for some people. Um, in terms of, um, and obviously, obviously it's sort of ended um, this is linked to the withdrawal agreement, but you know there is no Erasmus plan anymore, so it's more difficult to go and study in the in Europe. Not impossible, um, but there isn't this scheme that you're part of. It's big exchange. Um, in terms of going to work, um, well, obviously you could theoretically just pitch up and and see if you could get some work um, and look around. You didn't have to have an employer beforehand. Now you have to have a big plan. You'll probably have to go and find a job. Um, the employer has to apply for the right to employ you. So it's more difficult to go and work there, not impossible, but difficult. Um, 
retirement, which is a very popular thing um, among Brits who are retiring to Europe, that's made a bit more difficult because uh, there are now, the way you have to apply, there are now thresholds to the amount of money you need to have, which is above in, in many cases, or in some cases is above the sort of the state pension. Um, so it's, it's just more difficult. You've got more forms, you've got, uh, you know, you have to pay money, you have to get permissions, you have to get visas. Um, you have to plan ahead. So um, it's, a, it's, it's a pain and it has been a deterrent for some people, but it's also, there's also the perception that's going to be so difficult, which has put people off trying to go when it is actually still possible. Okay. So, you know, and you mentioned tourism there, but then there's also the issue of actually wanting to go and reside, you know, the popular British expat. So how easy is it if you, you know, Brits who want to go and live in the EU post-Brexit? So let me mention a couple of things about living there first, um, once you've got there, because there are a couple of things which is um, proving a problem for people who are there. Um, so, for instance, the because the UK doesn't have any passporting rights anymore, the UK finance sector, so banks can't solicit business in Europe, the UK bank. So if you're abroad or you want to go abroad and you want a UK bank account for various things you have in the UK, um, that's that's looking like it's it's sort of becoming pretty difficult. Um, I don't know if it'll become possible. I mean, some banks have sent letters to to Brits abroad saying we're going to have to close your bank because it doesn't work. So that's that's going to be a bit of a pain um, for um, for those going out now and goes there already. Um, and the other thing is that when you go out and you get residency in one country at the moment, your residence um, when they have settled status, the sort of European equivalent, people have now residency in one country rather than the whole of the EU so if you are like a lot of people do are living in the borders of one country and you might go and do work in other countries neighboring countries I mean that happens a lot say in Switzerland for instance in North Switzerland um, that is much more difficult it's not part of your original settlement so you have to think about how you can do those cross-border things when you go but um, there are options i mean you can go as you know, you can always try and get a job in the easiest thing obviously would be for your own job to in your own company to be able to get a transfer um, but obviously you have some kind of reasoning for that and then your employer would have to do all that but you know i don't know how easy that is now it's just more difficult to have britons in europe um because of the bureaucracy and the timing i mean um i spoke to someone who's who had a friend who'd um, lost a job in europe because in a European country, I think it was Germany, because um, they decided that an EU candidate would just be easier for them. So you have to try and get a job either from here, applying for a company there or to get your own um, employer to send you over, which is more difficult. It's expensive. It needs bureaucracy. It's got needs planning. Um, so not, not as easy as before, not impossible. Um, another thing is um, sort of struck me as interesting uh, is the skilled worker visas or the variations on them which um, seem to cover an incredible range of sort of shortage occupations from plumbing to psychiatrists to construction worker, teachers, uh, not, not, you know, and um, agricultural workers, obviously. And uh, there's just quite a range of looking at different countries. In, in Germany, there's a, a freelance visa, which isn't really freelance as much a liberal profession visa, which covers quite a range of um, jobs as well and um, which include uh, you know, lawyers, accountants, doctors, psychologists and then you've got a self-employed visa for Germany um, 
and that would cover another range of traders, caterers, craftspeople, producers of goods. So you can apply for one of those shortage professions. Um, I think if I remember rightly, uh, Finland recently, no, Denmark, sorry, Denmark recently updated its list for shortage professions and it's got 91 job titles. I mean, some of them are linked, but, you know, including jab technician, lab technician, sorry, um, shipping agent, town planner, social education worker, radiologist. So, you know, there are openings there. I mean, the other side of the coin is that you will have European nationals going for these jobs. So it's more difficult to get one for the reasons I said before. But, you know, there there are there are routes like that. Um, and you just, you know, it's applying for a visa, of course, is um unusual and annoying for a British citizen but as um as also a Turkish citizen um this doesn't go up right this doesn't apply for me but um people in Turkey move abroad quite a lot and it's very difficult to get out but you do you print you bring up the, um, the papers you go to the interview you know it is possible it's just the sort of horrible truth for Britain that now we're a third country and we're no better than all these other countries that um we always jump the queue in front of you know? so it's um it's tricky but it's doable one thing though when you do move like that is that a, a lot of qualifications might not be recognized anymore so you know this could apply to anything from law finance manual qualifications so you might have to go and retrain or just get reused certification so it's that's the sort of going and doing the the you know getting a job freelance or the skilled um skilled labor route you can also um, go as a digital migrant, um, which is sort of, you know, you can, you work there, um, but for other companies ab abroad and um, out of that country. And so it's sort of more flexible thing that's come, come about. It was pioneered um, unsurprisingly in uh, Estonia, which is one of the most digitally sort of advanced countries in terms of their government and um, bureaucracy in the world. Um, you can also do, uh, you know, you can also try and, get your checkbook out and um, try and get citizenship through the sort of golden um, visa type schemes that you have. Um, I mean, countries like Cyprus, Malta, you know, the, they have prices on this, but um, you, if you pay a certain amount of money and you stay a certain amount of time, you can get, um, you can, you can get some residency. So for instance, you've got Austria, Italy, Bulgaria, Luxembourg, Latvia, they all offer some sort of investment residency exchange. And you've got the Cyprus, if you pay, if you invest 300,000 euros in property, you can get this with your spouse and any dependent children under 25, you can get permanent residency and you can get, get it as quickly as two months. You know, if you go up to 2 million, you can get EU citizenship, which is sort of quite controversial, of course. Um, uh, you can get this in other places as well with, you know, obviously you have to stay there for a few years first, I don't think it's always that immediate, but it's easier in some countries than in others. Greece, you know, Cyprus's neighbour, there's a five-year residence visa for €250,000 plus tax investing property. Um, and you can renew that, so if Liz Trust is still around, you can carry on. Um, Portugal and Spain, you've got... 500,000 investment in property for residents and Malta's got a whole portfolio of things you have to do which costs uh, above a million euros so you know if you've got money you can do it um slightly uh controversial but we're in desperate times um another thing you can do is you can um go to Italy and try and get one of those one euro homes 
they do still exist. They've been written about quite a lot um, and they come up and down in various towns, usually in the south um, or various villages, I should say, um, which are usually quite rural. And they're not all, obviously, when you were homes, there are certain schemes, but there are cheap houses you can buy. Um, there was one province um, in Italy that offered 27,000 euros a year for anyone prepared to move there, buy a house and set up a business. And the, the reason they're doing that is because they've got a great problem with population and rural population so they have a whole whole number of um, whole swathes of the country let's say in the center or in the south in Italy in the center of Spain that are emptying out as young people go to look for opportunities elsewhere there's not much on offer in these villages they're very remote and um, they're right, very run down so people there don't really want to live there it's a sort of a leveling up issue if you like it's like everyone coming to London but in a more obviously visible way so, of course, because they want you to stay there and live there, then you've got to, there are conditions attached. So you invariably you need to re renovate the house. It can cost tens of thousands of pounds, even more. There's taxes, there's payments. You have to pay the architects and the lawyers. You have to commit to the region. So it's not always easy and it doesn't always work, but it's, you know, if you fancy living in the middle of nowhere in a pretty old Italian farmhouse and um, you can work remotely from there, well, maybe that is for you. I've um, heard offers a lot worse in my time, I have yeah. to admit. <laughs> well, exactly. You do think, you know, might as well try it. I mean, there are people who've tried it and have moved away. But um, at the very least, you get a year of sort of sunshine, as long as you can work. Well, not a year of sunshine, obviously exaggerated, but a year of you know, rural mm. bliss to rethink your life before you come back. So it's, it's, it's not easy, but if it's, the right, if it's the right kind of thing for you. I mean, there was, um, I was reading a story about... Um, Danny McCubbin, he used to work for the Jamie Oliver Foundation, and he got a one-year property um, a while back, but the fees were soaring, and it really, it just got more and more expensive, and though it was a pandemic, and he couldn't find builders, and so in the end, he sold it back, but then he still stayed in Italy, he went somewhere else, he lives there now, and he works from Italy, so it's, um, it's something that people are doing. Um, in these villages, they're also, they're now quite desperate, they're also working on bringing refugees in for instance from other countries um well from like syria or lebanon um and using their uh, using their skills to uh you know get them to revive the village I and mean, some of them have the kind of farming skills that are needed or the craft and stuff and that has been worked successfully in some places but obviously particularly in the political climate where the far right is um around still and could could do well in the next election so um it's that's a dodgy one but obviously this doesn't apply to our problem and then there's obviously the retiring to Europe, which I mentioned before. Um, and, you know, this time you, you can't just go with your pension, but you have to have visas, forms, you have to meet income thresholds. Um, and uh, as I did say before, in Spain, that's affected it because the inf income threshold is uh, more than 2,300 2, euros a month. And then you have to pay another 580 pounds, 80 euros, sorry, for any additional member. So that's, you know, you're not going to do that on your minimum pension. Um, but loads of Britons are still going to Spanish Spain for residency permits. But the thinking is that their new arrivals are like to be wealthier because they need to have more money um, to be able to meet that threshold. But then you've got France and Portugal where it's lower. Um, the threshold is lower. Um, I think Portugal, it's generally, um, I think, around the minimum wage, which is less than 10,000 euros a year. Then you've got further afield. Of course, you can go to Bulgaria. Some people have been going there. You know, you've got a type, T, type D visa, which covers pensioners and investors and students and workers. And so 
there's a lot of bureaucracy involved, but um, you know, you can go to the coast, you've got skiing and it's got history. So some more adventurers can go there. So um, there are many ways to go. Um, and uh, you just have to be prepared to, to work a bit harder on getting there, I think. Mm. And I do, I just want to pick up on something that you've written, which I think is quite interesting because we know over the last, you know, sort of two, two and a half years, we know that COVID has obviously changed a lot. It goes without saying work, travel, socializing. And you refer to this idea of, you know, remote work and this digital nomad visa that where remote working has gained a lot of currency during the pandemic, which is quite an interesting idea. Can you, can you talk us through that a bit? Uh, yes, of course. So, and that came from the idea that people, you know, weren't, were working at home. So where, why did it matter where they worked? And then you had the pandemic a spate of people going to, I don't know, remote island or some uh, European capital and doing their work there. And so then they, a number of countries, as I said, starting with Estonia, um, thought that this might be a, something to harness because you can get flexible workers, you know, they might not be they're probably not going to be a burden on the state um, because they have to have a certain amount of income, but they'll be young, upwardly mobile people and they can live and work in your country. I think um, Portugal's quite keen on, um, you know, luring some digital nomads over. And in fact, it's the most popular country at the moment by that. It allows you to, you can work flexibly, obviously, and as long as you can prove that you can support yourself. And so um, different countries have different rules um, and different thresholds, as I said before. But if you can prove that you've got enough work that's outside the country um, that you're staying in, um, you can go and have a go. I mean, and uh, it's quite quick to get. Um, and the tax is often you just pay tax in your country of residence. So you need things like health insurance and proof of place to stay in a background check, but um, which sometimes happens with other places, other ways of moving as well but um you can you know you can enjoy going going to different cities um and working for a bit in one and working for a bit in another and just keeping your normal work going and these visas seem to work from about six months to around two years and then you can renew them um so the monthly requirements again they can they're quite they can be quite high and if you're a sort of patchily paid freelancer um might be a bit harder so for Hungary, it's like 2,000 euros, but then you go up to 2,700 Malta. But if you want to go to Iceland, it's 7,550 euros. Um, so they obviously want the sort of cream of the crop. Because I think ultimately what these people are doing is in a sense the same as similar to the skilled worker visa here. We want to get highly skilled people who are, you know, contribute to the country. That's the idea anyway. Um, and this is what they want. So there are a lot of, there is a lot of demand for workers in countries especially as um uh, as the population ages so you know digital nomad visa is one of the quick easy ways of getting people around and what i also found interesting with this is that when i spoke to um nigel Ayres, who's the chief executive of this portal called expat network and he lives in spain and he says he is working in a shared working space with sort of digital nomads he calls them and they're not 20 something sort of you know, young, rootless, techie, 20-somethings. They're like an estate agent who's got a business in the UK or a, the boss of a loan company. They, you know, it's not just, he said, it's, it's not just your young kid living on a laptop, but serious business people who are just working from abroad rather than at home. And he says they take their families out there, they put their children in local schools. So people are moving around more once they get out there. And um, I mean, there's, sorry, there's a more flexible way mm. of working, which we've come accustomed to, um, 
during the pandemic, which is now expanding to other countries. Um, and a lot of countries are trying to bring in this kind of visa. So if you're in you know, Germany, say you'd still need the sort of freelance visa in Spain, you haven't got it yet, but something is coming in. So at the moment you have a non-lucrative visa. Um, in Portugal the same, they don't have that yet, but it's all coming on. So it's, it's sort of investing, interesting area to explore um, and more and more people are doing it. Mm. I have to admit, I might start going by the title Digital Nomad now. I quite like that. Um, I'm, I'm so tempted. Every time I looked at one country, I just thought, OK, I'm going to go there now. But obviously, there are other restraints. Other other issues at play. Other issues like family. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> forgot about them. Um, <laughs> but it seems like, I assume, the main takeaway is that, you know, it is possible. It's not all bad news, as, as what you said, Nigel Ayers sort of said to you. But essentially, the door maybe sort of closed a bit but it's a bit of a heavier door and you've just got to put a bit more effort behind it to shove it open essentially. Yes absolutely I mean another person I spoke to there was um, someone in Germany um, called Daniel Tetlow who's um, he's co-founded a campaign group called the British in Germany and he lives in Berlin and he just says there's a lot a really large contingent of Brits and they have come over a record number of Brits came over because he co-authored a study for Oxford University. Um, I think 2000 percent increase by 2020 of Brits going to um, Germany and obviously that's pre-actual Brexit (laughs) but um, there are a lot of them there now more people are coming in he says um, and they've got they're taking dual they're taking German citizenship because they have to um, because it's easier rather so it's creating this um, big group of sort of British Germans or British Europeans he said who are now much more invested in European life and European politics while still having a foot in the door of the UK. So sort of Brexit, in a sense, has made quite a few people much more European than they might have been. And his take is that, yes, there's extra hoops and bureaucracy, but the doors aren't closed. It's quite the opposite. Um, And if you've got the right kind, if you're the right kind of person, you'll like to get the visa you require because these countries are getting the benefits of you. So it's changed. It's harder, but it's not impossible. And I think what you said there is... um of Brexit has made people more European is the kind of political irony that I do really enjoy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, Sina, before you, before we sort of wrap up, you've written, you know, to go off onto a different issue, you've written for us before on issues around immigration and, and refugees, including, as I've mentioned earlier, the the brilliant podcast, The 27. I have to ask you before you go, what do you think about, you know, the exit of, of Priti Patel and, and Suella Braverman becoming becoming the Home Secretary? Well, sort of sublime to the ridiculous, but just the ridiculous part of it. Um, everybody on sort of Twitter or anywhere um, who has anything to do with refugees cheered and raised a glass when Priti Patel left. Obviously, she's been terrible for refugee rights. I mean the shutting down all the safe routes and then chastising people seeking asylum because they're using the only way they can come in, which is a non-safe route, calling them illegal migrants when you usually you give them, I mean, most of them are granted asylum. So in fact, there's not illegal and anybody has a right to try and claim asylum. You, you have the right to refuse it, but everyone has a claim right to change claim asylum so the way she's changed the narrative the way she's brought out these absolutely ludicrous ideas of um you know wave machines to keep the boats back or and some you know which are ridiculous and everyone laughs off but obviously then the Rwanda policy which is um 
appalling and dangerous and is now obviously being shown up in court to be and she probably won't manage to send well she won't but you know britain won't manage to send that many people to rwanda but the fact that a country like britain has this policy is just mind-boggling um so it's very she's she's left a very bad taste in everybody's mouth and she's done a lot of damage and you know people will have um suffered you know physically mentally in all ways because of this so um i don't think there are many people um who have any sort of compassion for refugees who are going to be sorry to see her go however her replacement <laughs> Sewell Braverman I mean she seems like she might be more hardline I mean she's certainly you know on the on the right so out there you can't quite believe it sort of right <laughs> she's um you know she's not she has even seemed to have even less um uh, respect for the law and given that she's a lawyer that's and has been attorney general which is also an extraordinary thing is um quite mind-boggling um and she one thing she's has said during her campaign that she wants to do is get rid of the you know pull out of the european corner of court of human rights which is um you know we're a co-founder it's nothing to do with the eu so i don't think she's going to be um very soft on migrants well anybody i think she's going to be pretty hard line so i i the cheering is very much tempered by the replacement some some short-term cheering and i yeah. suppose as you as you conclude your piece which i quite enjoyed you know if all else if all else fails we can just go to new zealand well we'll be very far away from it all um yes that's also very tempting <laughs> yeah a lot a long list of tempting things have come up in this um from one pound houses to going to new zealand um, neither of which will probably happen. Suna, I think that's a good place to to wrap it up today. Thank you so much for joining the podcast with us. To read Suna's piece in issue 307 of The New European, please visit theneweuropean.co.uk. Thanks, Suna. Thank you. Thanks again to Suna Erden for joining us on the podcast this week. You can read more from Suna's piece in issue 307 of The New European in Shops Today. And you can access all of Suna's articles online at www.theneweuropean.co.uk. Now, before the Hall of Shame, a reminder of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's rather brilliant. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's a superb listen. Two seasons are available now and can be found wherever you got this podcast. And now time for the Hall of Shame. First up is Jacob Rees-Mogg. And first, we must offer our congratulations to the newly appointed Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Right, now that's over. If he has a 12% stake in Somerset Capital Management, which has investments in oil and gas, then is his new post as Energy Secretary a glaring conflict of interest? Perhaps not. Therese Coffey is also in the Hall of Shame this week. The newly appointed health secretary said we've got priorities A, B, C, D, which stands for ambulances, backlogs, care, doctors and dentists. Now, the keen listeners of you will have noticed that that's technically A, B, C, D, D. But that's not why she's in the Hall of Shame this week. Nor is she in the Hall of Shame for admitting she's no role model and that she likes champagne and cigars. After all, her predecessor, Sadat Javid, said in an interview with The Telegraph that he liked a cigarette, and Matt Hancock was often seen with a pint. And honestly, the less said about his ex extracurricular activities, the better. 
The woman tasked with sorting out the NHS and the new Deputy Prime Minister is in the Hall of Shame this week for her voting record. In the past, she's voted against same-sex marriage, said she'd rather women didn't have abortions, and has voted voted against the issue. Joining them in the Hall of Shame is Edwina Curry. This week, the former Conservative MP said on Good Morning Britain that people shouldn't get emotional over their bills and rising costs. No. Why on earth would people be getting emotional over concerns about heating their homes or feeding families? Honestly, whatever happened to the good old British stiff upper lip anyway? She then continued to unveil her suggestion to heat your house on the cheap. She held up a sheet of tin foil and advised placing it behind your radiator, which will then heat the room and you can turn down the thermostat without causing discomfort. And, here's the stroke of genius, be sure to move the sofa away from the radiator. You want to be heating the room, not the sofa, after all. If you want a bit of a giggle, go and check out this clip and look at Martin Lewis's face while she's explaining this master plan. Edwina Curry, everyone. That was the New European Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you don't want to miss an episode of the podcast, please subscribe and give us nice reviews and lovely ratings. Please do listen to our podcast, The 27. It's available in the New Europeans podcast channel. And don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast, another one available from the New European. If you like what we do and want to help us keep on doing it, Please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter if you like, at elongman underscore rude. Until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.